people can like whatever they want to like. Maybe we should say that front and center. You can like whatever you want to like. You can like it whatever way you choose to like it. But we are also allowed to say, well, we disagree. This is Entertainment Geekly. Welcome back. I'm Darren Franich, writer for Entertainment Weekly. Across the table from me, calling in from his safe space, it's EW's Jeff Jensen. Calling in. I'm, I'm calling in you this week, Darren. <laughs> we are we are sitting in my lovely, modest home. We are. We are sitting in this home, and we ourselves are going to be lovely and modest this week, Jeff. We are? We are. I hope. We'll see. We'll, we'll see what kind of arguments we can get into here. Jeff, this episode, we're going to talk about fandom. Mm. What does that mean? Specifically, we're going to talk about a lot of the controversies that have emerged recently from the world of fandom. Devin Faraci recently wrote a very provocative essay, essentially asking the question, or rather just answering it, that fandom is broken. That the way fandom, and however you want to define it, fandom, geekdom, people online interacting with things they love, that something about that social contract, which was never written, has now been broken. The, the unwritten social contract has been burned. Um, out of this, you can sort of move to all the things that are happening right now. There is a quote-unquote Ghostbusters fandom that... <laughs> who knew? This. Who knew that there who was knew? just a legion of people out Jeff. there who just had such loyalty and passion to the... To, there was a cult of Ghostbusters the way there is like a cult of... Uh, I guess, well, anything, but Star Wars, you know? Yeah, well, and and maybe some of this is the fact that apparently you can just have a cult of anything now, which is fine. People can like whatever they want to like. Maybe we should say that front and center. You can like whatever you want to like. You can like it whatever way you choose to like it. But we are also allowed to say, well, we disagree. And can I just say, the Ghostbusters fandom, that movie, that first movie is a pleasant film. <laughs> People are not just angry at this new movie because it is a remake of a movie that I guess we've decided to treat as a classic. It's because there's this perception that, oh, like, there's women in it and there is this, you know, corner of the internet online that has attacked it for that, which is awful because, as I think I've told you before, Jeff... You know, women and transgender people and people of all races and colors and creeds, they should be allowed to make their own bad remakes. There's no, you know, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. Everyone should be able to do whatever they want to do. So there's the Ghostbusters fandom that has emerged out of the dark corner of the internet now. There's the new trend of kind of hashtag activism around movie sequels. Give Elsa a Girlfriend, which is focused on... Frozen 2, give Captain America a boyfriend, which is focused on the fact that, frankly, Civil War only makes sense if Captain America is already in love with Bucky, because <laughs> nothing else, that that's the only actual explanation for that movie. Right. And it's taking a place, this, this current conversation on fandom is, seems to be, it's an accumulation of many controversies over a period of years. I think maybe a starting point being Gamergate. Yes. Um, but uh, we seem to be having a lot of these over time, and it's also kind of fueled in part by a mainstream TV and movie critics who have also sort of have their very kind of like strong opinions on fandom, Devin Faraci being one of them, but many critics sort of like uneasy and even sort of alarmed by the practice of fandom online and, and how it expresses everything from coming at them with their sort of heated ballistic defenses of, of superhero movies like 
uh, an interesting kind of expression of fandom run amok. Recently, there was a petition made to sort of like try to go after critics suspected of taking payoffs, I guess, to praise and promote Marvel movies over, say, DC Comics superhero movies. There is a, there's a subset of fandom out there that kind of believes that is really invested in the whole Marvel and DC thing. And so that's an expression of that. So th- in this theory, a critic will write a negative review of, let's say, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Yes. An obviously bad movie. Yes. Um, listen, it's, it's all subjective, but that movie is terrible. And then <laughs> a fan will see that negative review and will say... Well, you were clearly paid off. Like they'll they'll look back and say you gave Captain America the Winter Soldier. You give that a good review, so ipso facto you've been paid off by Marvel. And they'll get angry at the critic for that. That's right. So does oh, this is and this is not this is not unusual for critics, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, like as a TV critic in your capacity, is this something that you deal with on a mental level, or something you deal with on an actual sort of realistic level? Like you'll say something not so great about one of the hundreds of superhero shows and people will kind of come at you for that? Yes and no. There was a recent incident in which a a group of fans uh, came after me critical of the way that I talked about The Flash. And in the best TV show of all time. The best TV show <laughs> of all time. Certainly, probably in the past couple of years, in, in many ways and, and, and in many weeks, uh, the best superhero TV show on, on television, kind of typifying a lot of r- really good things worth uh, talking about. But it's great that the CW paid you off for that. Yes, thank you. you. <laughs> I was paid to say that. However, that's why we're recording this at your Malibu estate in, right. in front of your infinity pool. However, for some reason, the check stopped coming after I wrote this, <laughs> in which I kind of really hated the Flash finale, and I thought the season two was really weak. But in particular, I criticized the show's use of romance. I feel like romance doesn't really work in The Flash. And in particular, I said that I wasn't really wild, and I've never been wild. I've been on the record as saying this from the very beginning, that I've never really bought into the idea of the romance between Barry and his longtime childhood crush, Iris. And and my reasons for my pushback on this in the show... Um, has been that in the world of the TV show, Barry's mom was killed when he was about 11. His dad went to jail. He had no one to live with. And so he came to live with family friend Joe West. And as it happened, Joe West is the father of Iris. So Barry started living with the girl that he was kind of like hopelessly in love with as a kid. And I always kind of pushed back against the depiction of this on the show and my own kind of, I guess, view about what what seems like plausible and realistic. I never felt like the show really dealt seriously enough or realistic enough with the question that I obviously had, which is after he moved in with them, is it possible that childhood crush would go away and their relationship would morph into something more like brother and sister. Not that they are brother and sister, and not that Barry was ever adopted by Joe. So he was Um, never adopted? I think he's like only technically like a foster child because his dad is still alive and in jail, right? I see. But so I I, I kind of felt like, I'm not really sure I would buy, I'm buying this formulation of all of this. Um, I'm not sure, you know, I'm I'm not sure that, I, I know what the show wants me to believe. The show wants me to believe that he retained these feelings 
and that despite the fact that they lived together, everything was still kind of relatively, you know, it never went into a familial re- relationship. He spent the ensuing decade and a half scheming on the girl that was essentially, for all intents and purposes, his sister. That's right. totally normal. This is very normal human behavior. It, it's shocking that more shows haven't been made about this. So, <laughs> so continue. Regardless, that was my reasoning. I understand that there are a lot of people out there who might uh, look at this and kind of go, oh, I, I think it's perfectly logical and plausible that he would continue to have a crush and everyone would be fine with this. And you know what? That's right. That is a, a reasonable debate. In fairness, like a show is not just stuff happening. A show is, is this happening in a way that I believe it? Is it That's an right. effective storytelling mode? I, I'm misquoting, but like Roger Ebert has that great line about how a movie isn't just what it's about, it's about how it is about it. So it is totally fair to say that The Flash, which may do a lot of things very well, can't do this thing very well. Right. So you didn't you didn't buy into that part of That's the right. show. Yes. So, but other people did, and other people fell for it very hard. And there is this sort of segment, speaking of fandom, that has always been rather interesting, oftentimes really valuable, but also in, in some ways just frankly kind of ridiculous, like, the shipping community, right? Um, And shipping has become a major part of fandom and a a, a major part of sort of the business of this kind of television these days and this kind of pop culture. You know, we live at a time where we'll, we'll kind of get into sort of like rabid fandom and out of control fandom. But look, Hollywood encourages this. Hollywood plays to it. Their whole marketing schemes and their whole, the way they approach a lot of this stuff is is more actively and and strategically devoted toward cultivating these kinds of tribes of active, passionate, out-of-control fandom. It all ultimately serves their ends, right? Yes. So yes, there is this shipping community, and and these particular shippers love Barry, and they love Iris, and they want them together. And so when they read in my review that, look, uh, as I said in my review, I will never buy into the idea that Barry is going to have a romance with his adopted sister. Now, the Barry and Irish shippers immediately jumped on me for one huge factual error, which I completely regret, which is not adopted. Not adopted. But they kind of jumped and on And you call me. yourself a journalist. I know, I know. <laughs> they jumped on this, and they kind of said, okay, first of all, he's not adopted. You're factually wrong about this. I can't believe that you persist in criticizing this, it's the canon of the show. It's always been the canon of the show that they're in love. This is the text of the show. Why do you persist on this? And then they went another step, which is because my position struck them as so unreasonable that no, like, I guess, sane person, in their opinion, could hold the view that I could have, they immediately assumed that there must be another reason why I oppose Barry and Iris. And what they decided was that the reason why that I oppose them is that I, a white guy, have issues with watching on TV or in real life a relationship between a white person and a black person. That is a ludicrous jump to make. To base what you are saying and jump right into there, and that is so ludicrous to me. Right. And you've told me this story in part, Jeff, and I have gotten frustrated just thinking about it. <laughs> and 
you know, I'm against racial erasure, although I didn't know that it was a thing until I never heard that terminology before, but I'm against it. I'm also <laughs> whatever I'm, it is, I'm against I'm, it. Well, yeah, no, exactly. But I'm also against people just jumping there as if to say, like, well, you've made a sort of qualitative assessment that I disagree with, and not only that, your qualitative assessment feels like an attack on me, which it's not meant to be. But these people feel as if I, I assume they feel as if you have somehow attacked something that they love. Therefore, you've attacked something of them. Therefore, they will counterattack. And th- this, this to me, gets to the core of the fandom argument, which is how, how do we go from a place where there is this thing, it's called The Flash, it's a TV show, sometimes it's good, sometimes it sounds like it's not so good, it's based on a comic book that's been around for, I believe, 60 or 70 years. The Flash has had some good years and some terrible decades. This is the nature of comics. Like... We should be able to speak openly about that. But let me tell you why I take it seriously. I mean, it's because I, I am a white guy and I'm a 46-year-old white guy. And I don't think that I am particularly profound on issues of race or or whatever. I feel like my life has been a ongoing journey of sort of like, journey, that sounds so lame. <laughs> Um, but, but look, it, I just kind of feel like you're a it's, seeker. It's Jeff an ongoing, uh, ongoing kind of process of like uh, revelation and kind of like my opening my own eyes to things like privilege or where I might sort of uh, have blind spots in, in in my own sort of understanding of my own sort of view about race, how I kind of conceptualize race, how I talk about race, um, and, and all these things. So. When I'm challenged by people of color or, or, or anyone who doesn't look like me or who isn't like me about how I talk about things, I take that seriously. I want to internalize it. I don't immediately want to knee-jerk reject it because I think that there is something I want to really kind of like pay attention so that I can learn how to write about these things and think about these things um, more clearly and more thoughtfully. So what I kind of feel about these particular critics is that they're so blinded by their shipper passion that they're just kind of like latching onto anything that can indict me and blow me up so that they could support ultimately their shipper thing. Um, But I think that they they were saying how you wrote about something led me to sort of believe or think about some of these things what does that mean? And while I'm gonna, well, I would say to them, well, it certainly doesn't reflect any sort of intent on my part. It does inspire me to be more thoughtful and careful about how I express things. It frustrates me when you know, if you want to say something honest about something for which there is a fandom, and you want to say something that is is, it's not just like you know, here's how this relates to the comics it's based on, or here's how it relates to. It's literally just like, I just saw this movie. I have these thoughts about this movie. I'm not saying you are a bad person if you like this movie, and I'm not saying you can't like it. I'm just saying here's what I see. The nature of fandom now often takes that as a direct assault. And I'm not sure when that started, but I find that that is a, you know, it makes every conversation feel very loaded. But there is a level of ownership that I think people have now that I'm not sure they used to have with this stuff. Or did they? Was was that sense of ownership and that sense of being so deeply personally connected to things? Do you think does that come from the internet? Do you think does that... How do we get to the point where you, Jeff, can say something... What sounds to me, like, frankly, lightly critical, you weren't saying The Flash is a D-minus TV show that should only be watched by horrible people. You were saying 
this is a show that has some problems. And this led people on the Twitter assault. Like, how, how did we get there and how could we improve it? Right. Well, th- that's a great question. And as usual, you've given me such a, uh, a you've gone on such- a sort of rant that was so rich there that I have to take it apart and, 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 uh, and, 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 and deal with things separately. Let's begin with that sort of like that, that beginning idea of the whole idea of like you, you, have, you see a movie, you have an opinion, you feel a need to express it, or if you are in the opining industries like we are, God help us. <laughs> God help us. Yeah, um, you know, we we have to write it. We have to put it out there, and then we are met with um, uh, two forms of fan engagement, and they're both kind of like we got we got to take the good with the bad here. You know what I mean? Coming back to one of the things that you said, as both a journalist and as now a critic. What I would say is that my own coverage of fandom over the years or my own coverage of franchises that inspire a lot of fandom, whether it's Star Trek, whether it's Harry Potter, whether it's Lost, from, you know, whether it's I, I write like, you know, franchise coverage or whether I write recaps with crazy theories and bizarre opinions about things or I try to write some kind of serious criticism about it after a kind of experiencing all the kind of reaction that you could possibly get to all of these things. I just practice a form of compartmentalization and and distinction, which is that what I honestly believe is, is that fans are fans and critics are critics. And when I write a piece of criticism and a fan comes at me with a fan engagement and with fan passion and they hate what I wrote, yeah, it kind of bothers me. But at the same time, I know what that's about because I've been there as a, as a younger person, maybe even kind of now, which is, is that when you're a fan, you desperately want the mainstream culture to affirm your crazy passion for this rather peculiar, maybe small thing, maybe huge thing that you just love so dearly, right? Mm-hmm. It's just not enough. It really isn't not, it's not, it's not enough. For some reason, it should be enough. So to let's just say, I love this thing. Doesn't matter what anyone has to say, just my own relationship with this thing. Other people love it in their own intense and weird ways, but I love it in this way. And then that's fine. If you don't like it, that's fine. If you if you love it, but love it differently, that's fine. That should be sort of the mature reaction, right? But that's somehow not enough for the fan. The fan needs to be affirmed. They need their passion to be affirmed because it's kind of a crazy, scary, weird place sometimes to be a fan. Or it just speaks to how deeply that you love something and how meaningful it is that you want to share it. You want everyone to have that same passion. And so you want everyone to sort of believe in it, at least, or at least love it the way that you love it, to have that quality of love. I mean, I'm sure that specific expression of it, yeah. right? Also, you have a clear, you have a clear-eyed perspective on this, and they don't. I right. guess this is what frustrates me about fans, and this is why it is very hard for me to ever say that I identify as a fan. So much of being a fan now seems to be, you know, not. I will go to this work of entertainment or this work of art and I will experience it and maybe I'll love it, maybe I'll hate it. It seems to be I accept completely this thing, even though this thing is not one thing. Batman is not one thing. Batman is 80 years of multimedia and it's there's new stuff all the time. Sometimes it's terrible, as Batman v Superman showed. (laughs) Sometimes it's incredible, as The Dark Knight showed. But but there, there is some level of fandom which seems to be, no matter what it is, I will love it, I will defend it, unless, unless, and this is the other side of that, if it is so totally not what I want it to be. 
let's kind of burrow down a little bit on one flashpoint of fandom that we kind of often see in the sort of like fan wars about things and disagreements about these things. This idea of the correct representation, that this is not the right way to do X character. Maybe for, for us in the context of our podcasting and maybe to our audience in general, but I mean, a, a huge flashpoint for this, for example, was Zack Snyder's first Superman movie, Man of Steel, which horrible. which was which which is you sorry, say horrible, sorry, sorry. I, you say horrible, I say flawed. We agree with thumbs down, but for different reasons, I think. But there we saw a huge disagreement, a huge outcry among fans, basically along the lines of this is not Superman. This is not how you treat and how you deal with Superman. And I always pushed back, you know, in, in our arguments over that movie. You're saying, I mean, like, you want to defend Zack Snyder's right to do whatever he wants to do. I want to defend anyone's... Which, which I agree with. I, yes. I, I want to defend anyone's right to offer a different interpretation on a character. And this whole sort of notion that sort of uh, was at the heart of some complaints about the depiction of Superman, that this is this is not the right depiction of Superman. Superman never kills. Superman is always this. Superman is always that. Superman should always be this. I don't know. Like, push back on that for a couple reasons. One is, is that we've had now, like, how many years, I don't know, of Superman storytelling. If I'm open, I'm in the market for, for something new, something different on Superman. If it's not the Superman I like, I will always have the stories in the past that I can go back to. Right. I think that if when we hold the franchise to be beholden to a certain kind of representation, a certain kind of characterization of a character, we are no longer asking Hollywood to make us art. We're asking them to just make us products to branded consumer products that never change i don't know how that person who argues that the idea of like there needs to be a certain kind of superman he always needs to be that kind of thing they need to in order to convince me completely that that should be the case they need to square it with their defense of art and wanting art and to be open to artistic interpretation and finally i would say the sort of ownership even devin farachi who wrote this wonderful essay or you know provocative essay you know fandom is broken you know, he was at the forefront of lambasting the Superman, Zack Snyder Superman movies for getting Superman wrong. And my, my, my complaint with his perspective and the perspective of other people who, who kind of echoed similar things is that it was very clear that their Superman, their notion of Superman is framed by a certain point in time in which they grew up reading Superman stories. And it kind of betrays sort of like this larger problem with this with this whole point of view, which is that everyone's relationship with certain long existing timeless properties is different and framed by different points of time. One of my favorite essays on fandom that that's ever been written was something that you wrote about your relationship to the star Wars franchise. But I thought that was extremely illuminating because you wrote this essay around the time of star Wars, the force awakens. That was at a time when the, when it seemed that the majority of the culture was really gearing up and rallying around the idea of, the second coming of Star Wars, as defined by a return to the kind of feel and sensibility and motifs that defined Star Wars upon its initial point of discovery back in the, in the early 70s with the original trilogy, right? And, and the praise of that movie, and the, it was largely driven from that point of view. 
It's something that I can certainly relate to. That's my framework. I was seven years old when Star Wars came out. That was my like defining sort of like pop culture moment. And so, yeah, like that narrative, that framework, that's all me. That's not you. What I thought was fascinating is that you talked about becoming a Star Wars fan at a different point of time after the original trilogy, being a, a, a teenager in the late 80s and 90s where you're kind of discovering this sort of like a interesting point in Star Wars history in which Lucasfilm is actually trying to lay the groundwork perhaps for a Star Wars revival late in the 90s by doing more storytelling in print with books, with comic books, with toy lines even, with even some early kind of video games. And, and there you kind of see this explosion of this notion of the expanded universe and this wonderful idea that Lucasfilm originally had that all storytelling that would be sanctioned and licensed by Lucasfilm was in world, was in game, was was that, you know, and for you, you know, yeah, like the movies were these things that you discovered on cable TV or home video. But for you, your Star Wars fandom became activated with this new storytelling that was being done in all this media so that when we get to the prequels, well, you were as betrayed as everyone else. Yes. <laughs> right. I want to be very clear about that. Yeah. You were on equal footing. So you got into Star Wars in a way that is different from me, but our respective experiences were such that we could still feel disappointed by the prequels. But when it when it came to the J.J. Abrams movie, and particularly J.J.'s decision to essentially do away with the expanded universe and just kind of now favor exclusively kind of like and define Star Wars now as essentially a relationship with the original trilogy. Well, that worked for me because of how I got into it at the frame of time that I did, but not for you. And you felt, yeah, I mean, regardless of how you feel, <laughs> regardless of how you feel about The Force Awakens, you know, you, I think that you're probably able to put fandom aside and assess the movie as it is. But regardless, you kind of opined, that kind of pissed you off. This, this treatment of this kind of material that made you a fan is now completely discarded in favor of this different cultural narrative yes. of a Star Wars defined by the experience that happened back in the 70s. Which, which I mean, you know... I thought that was fascinating. That changed my way about how I look at fandom and opened my eyes to the fact that, like, different people come to things different ways and have different frameworks, different expectations... I th yeah, that was well, that's 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 good that it was illuminating. I mean, I'm still working through all of those issues, and I think that it's funny that you brought up that essay because I was about to talk about um, one of my least favorite things that I've ever written. Not because I was wrong, because I'm never wrong, but because I think <laughs> everything about how I built my argument was really inaccurate. Is I wrote one of those uh, Man of Steel get Superman wrong essays. I think the essay was actually called "What Man of Steel Doesn't Get About Superman." Which is just just right in the headline construction feels like a you know you know slice of a parody of a 2013 uh, think piece, which is kind of what it was. The main gist of this think piece, which you know I saw Man of Steel, really didn't like it, especially really did not like the end of the movie when he kills General Zod. One of the main reference points I had in this piece was one of my personal favorite Superman stories, which is whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Right. There are a lot of things, if you know Superman history, that are maybe coded into using that story. Uh, you know, it was essentially an imaginary story within an imaginary story. It's the end of the pre-crisis Superman as imagined by Alan Moore. It's a story that, like, you, you, you could argue is really more of a what-if than an actual story, which already kind of for some people means that should be separate from the conversation. 
Um, but it's a perfect story and everyone should read it. Uh, <laughs> and I focus so much on that because in that story, Superman ultimately does kill someone and it is a, a ruinous moment for him. And it is a moment that forces him to essentially stop being Superman. He feels that he no longer should be. So that was one reference point I had. In this essay where I was saying that, you know, Superman in this movie, there's something fundamentally wrong about him. And that fundamentally wrong thing is the moment when he kills General Zod. Now, a lot of people, this is probably the most I've ever, most people that have ever been angry at me for anything that I've ever written was this. Some of them saying, I didn't know Superman history because Superman, in the comic books, I think it was when John Byrne was working on, on the character after the Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, he does in fact kill General Zod and the other characters. I knew about this story. That story, you know, I could have gone into, had I been frankly writing this story better, I could have gone into the fact that in that situation it is treated like such a crazy thing that Superman leaves Earth for a while. And, yeah. you know, it is it is not treated as if, you know, in the movie he turns right around and he's you know, back to having fun. It is a major moment. I could have mentioned that. I didn't. People said, I don't know Superman. Um, you know, I, I also, in this piece, just, you know, focused so much on him killing Zod and how that was so not Superman-like. And lots of people sort of responded and said, well, you know, he isn't even really Superman yet. He's still figuring things out. Which, you know, leads into all kinds of other questions about, like, well, if he's not even Superman, why the hell make a Superman movie? Why have another origin story? Uh, you know, a lot of people mentioned something that I think you mentioned in our Superman-Batman podcast a little while back, which was, in Superman 2, he also kills Zod. It's just not a big deal. Right, right. <laughs> he's, he's just a sociopath who kills people and doesn't... So, this is all to say, like, I mean, Man of Steel is still terrible, and I'm not sure Zack Snyder's ideas about Superman are that interesting, but, you know... It seems as if we are in this phase where, on one hand, it's frustrating writing about this stuff because it seems like any reference point you want to pick, in my case, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, where to, to, where the act of Superman killing someone is a horrible thing, whatever reference point you want to pick for these characters to say, that's what this character is, there are 80 years of other reference points that will counter-argue against that, and, you know... Just when you want to say, as a lot of people were saying, I think, seven or eight years ago, Batman is great because he is realistic. He is a person who has all these things. He's fighting, you know, characters who, while crazy, could happen anywhere. This is the side of the fandom that says Clayface is dumb, which is probably true, but I, I kind of like some Clayface stories. But just, <laughs> when you, just when you want to say that, then Grant Morrison will come along and say, I'm doing all the, you know, 50s Batman stuff again. He's going to have a Batman family, and all the Robins <laughs> are going to be around. And, you know, this is all to say that, like, I think a lot of fandom now is invested in the idea that there is a right way to do things. And I think that is the most frustrating part of it for perhaps creators and certainly for those of us who want to have a democratic conversation about this stuff is that's the enemy of art, I think. And I, I throw myself in there. Like, maybe there was a better way to phrase what I was getting at with Man of Steel than Superman is this way, he should only be this way. But... I don't know. At the same time, I think everyone who came at me was also wrong. <laughs> so, right. so, so maybe we were just all wrong, and maybe that's the lesson here, is that it's not so much that fandom is broken as that everyone is a little bit correct in how they approach these things and a little bit wrong, and maybe there needs to be more recognition of that. Um, but we should talk a bit about the, the sense of entitlement and the feeling of 
quite the opposite. Not only am I not wrong, but this thing, this thing that I love might be wrong, actually. And this thing needs to be fixed. Yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, the entitlement issue is really complicated. The sense of ownership is really complicated. And there's, there's not just one reason why fans are like that, you know. I think there's this interesting idea of nostalgia for some people who kind of like have this sort of a sense of entitlement on on what a movie or a, how a character should be represented or depicted. Yeah, it's kind of rooted in uh, a nostalgia of what they knew from the past and the way they want to see that. And that's just a, a very complicated thing. It's interesting. I, I think that this whole issue of entitlement and ownership of pop culture, the kind of thing that inspires someone to like petition for a certain kind of depiction of a character in a movie or a sort of a, a certain approach to a famous icon is definitely been affected by this sort of larger consideration of representation in our culture and society and in our entertainment from wanting to see more people of color more gays and lesbians reflected um, in our storytelling so that we have storytelling that reflects America so that it's not just all like white guys, yeah. you know, and that's reflected in our real world. I mean, we, 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 we need, you know, and reflected certainly in our current presidential race. I mean, it's remarkable now that we have a female presidential candidate uh, who has a great chance at, at winning, but it's been a, a long time coming and, and we're still kind of reconstructing a society that completely favors white men, right? And that's mm -hmm. going to be a long, fraught, messy, complicated process. So, uh, you know, uh, against these kind of backdrops, yeah, I mean, you have these groups of fans that that is very kind of a socially conscious, but very much like steeped in identity politics and and all these kinds of things. So that, you know, that they, they latch on a character that represents them on whether explicitly or they perceive it. Yeah. This is an incredibly like difficult thing and complicated thing to critique because there is no kind of real one right answer there, right? How do you tell someone who's deeply invested in that kind of representation, hey, what you want is wrong because it's but, not appropriate well, to interface with creators well, like yeah, that. Exactly. You know? Yeah, like like I'm excited we've been talking about like the female Ocean's Eleven, and I am very excited for that. And I'm very excited about like, you know, anything that brings more than just white dudes to the forefront of Hollywood entertainment is a good thing. I'm also very concerned about all the other issues we're talking about, but it seems so churlish of me to go to someone who is saying, you know, why can't Disney have a gay character to say, don't don't tell creators what to do, because obviously that's just horrible. I mean, you know, I completely agree that that is what we right. should have. Yeah, I mean, there was an interesting uh, flashpoint of this earlier this year in the TV show The 100, in which uh, the character Lexa, who is a lesbian, was killed in, in a terrible manner. I mean, the, the actress needed, I think, to leave the show. She's on Fear the Walking Dead. That, yeah. Right. And so the show got rid of her in, in, in a really bad way. And I honestly think I could be really wrong about this. But if the writers and directors of that show had done better by that death with a more meaningful story, a more meaningful scene, you know, I, I want to say that maybe even the fans of Alexa, for whom, like, you know, especially gay and lesbian uh, fans of the 100 for whom that character was extremely important and they kind of latched on to as a, a very valuable and very cool bit of representation. If that if they had done right by that character and that, that story, they might feel differently. That said, given the history of just sort of like the casual offing of gay and lesbian characters and the fact that 
usually these characters are not intrinsically baked into a show. They're added on in the stride of a show. That was a really bitter pill. This also came in the midst of a straight up, there seemed to be a character, a lesbian character death in a lot of TV shows. Totally. I mean, to bring an example, like, you know, Walking Dead is a show that when it started, it was mostly about like white people, really. And deep down, I do still think that is a show that can't get over the fact that it needs to ultimately settle on what is our favorite white dude, Rick Grimes, going to do to save society this week. So that may- maybe that's a problem with the show. But that's a show that has course-corrected quite a bit, that has done a lot to bring in different kinds of people, different kinds of faces. And right. yet, this season, I think right around the time that Lexa was being killed, they had brought in a character played by Merritt Weaver, to get to what you were saying, here's a character who was brought in, she happened to be a lesbian, then she was killed off within that season. And there was the perception that, like, this is a show that traffics in, and I, I like the show quite a bit, traffics in cheap shock tactics right. and killing well, people off. And what random. was weird was is that she was recruited, the way that in which she died mirrored a moment exactly in the comics um, in which a, another character died in the exact same fashion at roughly the exact same moment in the comic book narrative as we were at that point in the television show adaptation. And that character was a guy, a guy who is still on the show. So in the comics, Abraham had the death that was given to the character played by Merritt Weaver. And nobody cared because he's a boring character. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. So it almost kind of felt like, yeah, they like, we, we got to create a character that could basically like take that hit so that we could spare Abraham. And so let's do, let's make her a lesbian. I mean, it just kind of felt like they created that character to die. Yeah. And so, yeah, they patted themselves on the back with a bit of sort of diversity and representation only to like kill her. It just kind of felt kind of cheap and meaningless. But hey, that show is cheap and meaningless. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of frustrated with it. But, but I mean, like th- th- this was the backdrop for the Lexa uh, right. controversy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so what I would say is like for my takeaway from that controversy is that really opened my eyes to a lot of things that Hollywood really needs to be doing differently when it comes to representation, right? We need more television shows that offer greater diversity from the get-go. Hollywood just needs to do a better job when they're creating these franchises, when they're telling these stories from the get-go to think about diversity. That said, when pockets of certain kinds of fandom latch onto certain kind of characters that they admire, that they love, that speak to them, that represent them, that they want to protect those characters, they want to see those characters flourish, and they're paying to see them go. I do think they cross the line a little bit when they start petitioning for whether it's like characters to be changed or to be played a certain way or to lobby for for, for their non-removal from a show to like protest their killing and make an issue out of it unless it's just done poorly. I guess what I'm saying is, is that like I... I still side on the side of the storyteller. I want to be told a story, you know, and I want to see the creators of the 100 tell their story their way and tell us their story. And I want them to do it really, really well. And I want them to respect their characters and I want them to respect their audience. And when they don't do that well, they should be dinged and they should be knocked. And they were right to be knocked on how they dealt with Alexa. But the, the notion that she shouldn't have been killed just because she was a lesbian, that I kind of, I push back on. I, I want them to have the right to do what they need to do with their characters. If it feels right, if it feels important, then and that's right for their story. Well, and do you think, I mean, again, we are not staring this issue in the face in the way that maybe we should, which is we are talking about exclusively, this is all fandom is focused on, we're talking about genre fiction. 
Yeah. No, no one ships William Faulkner novels. <laughs> um, no one second guesses Citizen Kane and says that, like, they really messed up those characters. At the risk of sounding very tweedy, because I happen to think there is something deeply transcendent about a lot of genre fiction and about a lot of science fiction and fantasy, it seems to me that the relationship that people have to the things they love in entertainment now seems like it's gotten different, frankly, since we've uh, since we've come along. And it feels like the relationship people have with the entertainment they love has changed an awful lot. Well, and I would so. disagree with that. I think that um, I think that fans have always been this way. I think they've always been messy. I think they've always been like overly invested. I think they've always been like irrational in their love and passion for things. I'm not saying that this is all fandom. There have always been those kinds of fans. Those kinds of fans that have an unhealthy, irrational, messy, opinionated, fundamentalist kind of relationship to their stuff. I think there are other ways that you can be a fan of things. I think some of the great critics of our time are great fans of work. I think you can be a fan and a kind of reasonable thinker about things at the same time. Now, the social media aspect, our cultural, the way that we express it now takes on a life of its own. This feels different, you know, like yeah. um, the, the, well, and the. It's yeah. also tricky, too, because I think to take the Lexa thing just as our final, because I think it's such a brilliant case in a lot of ways. If you are someone who believes fervently in the representation of LGBT characters on screen, as I do, them killing her off. And anyone who defends that killing on the grounds of they're the storytellers and they're allowed to tell a story they want to say, that feels like an attack. Can you imagine if, just theoretically, uh, they were to make a movie out of Alpha Flight and they made North Star a straight man? You know, <laughs> I would find that, I, I would be furious about that. I don't even care about North Star. He's a horrible character. But North Star is like, you know, he was one of the first gay characters in comic books. And the, the saga of him being totally dull over two decades of storytelling, but by golly, like, being an out gay superhero and ultimately getting married, that is, like, deeply embedded in my love of comic books and my love of their possibilities. If they made him into a straight man, I, I would probably be, I, I'd be furious as well. When, everyone, when everything feels like an attack, and on social media it can be a little unclear, because social media is just a media of interaction and of words... Words aren't necessarily an attack the way that a punch is, but when we live so much online, it can feel worse than a punch. It can go straight to your soul. Anybody who, anybody who wants to read any of the comment boards on anything you or I write, Jeff, will see lots of people saying, saying mean things about us, and that hurts. It doesn't hurt the way that a punch in the face hurts. It probably hurts the way that you know, stand-up mm -hmm. comedians spend years just building up a shield around themselves because every time they go out for the first few years of being a comedian, it's just people yelling at them and saying they're terrible. That hurts. And I think that a lot of people, they assume any criticism is an attack and they counterattack. And so even when, as in the Flash thing, it is a well-intentioned critique, somehow it becomes a war. And I think that's where it feels like social media has shifted fandom. Maybe not broken it, but has certainly shifted it. And in terms of solving this problem, there's no solving it from the fan end in sense of like, I don't think that we could sit here and reasonably expect fans that practice fanatical 
fandom. I mean, the word fan, fanatical. I mean, it's like for us to kind of sit here and kind of wonder, when are they going to like become reasonable about their passions? <laughs> <laughs> they are expressing themselves in a way that's critiquing something that's been done. But so you're saying we need to change. We as in but like us so, media people. Like, who... I, like I think that there are definitely expressions of fandom that we need to call out. At the same time, I also think that we could do a better job at letting fans be fans. I guess the frustrating thing is that this is all a Faustian bargain because writing about superhero movies will get a lot more people to come to your website than writing about The Lobster, one of the best movies that I have seen in the last few weeks. But, you know, it's a Faustian bargain. So you say, like, well, fandom is broken, but also that this fandom is what gets attention on this. And so, therefore, we are playing into that fandom. In turn, Hollywood is totally fine with saying, like, well, yeah, like, we try to make a movie like Aloha, and maybe it's a a bad movie in that case, although I quite enjoyed parts of it. But we try to make that, and nobody cares. And then we make, you know, another Captain America movie, and it makes a billion dollars. So it's it's all a Faustian bargain, and everyone is equally in the wrong. Maybe we all just kind of need to, like, grow the F up. Like... (laughs) Like, I mean, right. I mean, I love a lot of superhero things, but, you know, people, you should also go read great works of literature, and you should also read, like, you know, history books, and you should also experience things that are provocative, and superhero things can be all of that, but they often aren't, and treating them like that, I think, is a problem. So, I, I, I don't know, I mean... You say that, you know, fans will appreciate things a certain way, and who, who are we to try and I think fix we have that? to be discerning when we come after them. Right. That's what I'm saying. That's fair. There are definitely clear flashpoints of, uh, ex- of, of fandom. And, so to speak. And, 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 yeah. <laughs> and expressions of kind of fan behavior that need to be called out and need to be protested. Yeah. But then I think what ends up happening, what is what is happening lately, is, is that there is this sort of just this rolling momentum of criticizing fans for fans uh, for their fandom and everything kind of gets lumped in and now we're criti- you know we're just like oh those dang fans and then we yeah. kind of like criticize which is, everything which is wrong. and which is wrong. we need to kind of have yeah. a little more distinction you know just more discernment about about what we kind of go after there right. i think and also nobody can say anything about anything until they read all of virginia wolf's books so uh jeff <laughs> uh i think we've solved fandom actually i think we we almost it was tough but towards the end i think we did it um, everybody who has listened to this episode and has thoughts, email me at Darren underscore Franich at EW.com. Don't email Jeff. He's too busy responding to Flash fans. Uh, you, uh, you can follow him at EW Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich. Uh, we'll be back next week to talk about uh, something that I guarantee there is a fandom for. <laughs> <laughs>